This episode of No Place Like Home is brought to you by the Sierra Club, which encourages you to explore, enjoy, and protect the planet. Join our almost 3 million members and supporters in working to power this nation with 100% clean energy at sierraclub.org. Hi, I'm Anna Jane Joyner. And I'm Marianne Hitt, and this is No Place Like Home, a show that gets to the heart of climate change. We have an awesome interview with one of my heroes, religious scholar and author Diana Butler Bass, who has a book that just came out in paperback called Grounded, Finding God in the World. I'm reading it right now, and it's awesome. Also, Diana tells us how her climate denier ex-boyfriend ironically inspired her, in part, uh, to become a climate activist. But first, Anna Jane and I have some catching up to do. have had a lot on your plate recently. How are you doing? How are you holding up? Oh, I am keeping my head above water. You know, every day there is some new existential threat coming from Washington, D.C. to our Appalachian Mountains, to our climate, to our clean water, to our clean air, to environmental justice. And I am right in the middle of it. And um, I am. It's really exciting to see how passionate the response is, and it's a little overwhelming to try to uh, find a path forward some days, but it's important work, and I want to thank all of our listeners who are out there helping us uh, to defend defend all the things we care about. But I want to talk to you, Anna Jane, about this interview that we have today, because I think in these crazy times when we feel like everything we love is under threat, uh, we really need to tap into some deep wisdom. And I think a lot of people find that in their faith and in their kind of spiritual journey. And we have a great interview today with Diana Butler Bass, who is an incredibly inspiring leader and thinker on all these issues. And you two have quite a lot in common from your your background and your growing up and kind of coming out of evangelical uh, families and paths into kind of a new understanding of things. So uh, that was really fascinating listening to the two of you connect on all that. Yeah, it definitely brought back some memories <laughs> from, a, from <laughs> a long time ago. Um, but yeah, it was, she also grew up in the evangelical church and had an epic story that you will get to hear a little later on. But I think um, I really resonated with kind of her theological perspective. I think like partially because you know, the apocalypse does feel like it's imminent <laughs> and everything <laughs> just feels so overwhelming that having a spiritual conversation and then kind of rooting myself back into some of those ways of thinking about the world, um, you know, did, you know, does make me feel maybe just a little bit more centered <laughs> in all of this. Um, yeah. One thing I thought was so interesting is I think a lot of people, especially, you know, I grew up in a very conservative place in East Tennessee uh, with a kind of conservative interpretation of Christianity. And I think a lot of people see taking care of the environment and the climate as being at odds with Christianity. And she had a very different take that I thought was actually incredibly inspiring. And I drew a lot of strength from it and even thinking about my work and how to move ahead in these crazy times. Oh, absolutely. Like, I, you know, when she was talking about this whole or the, what her book's really about is kind of grounding God in our experience and in each other and in the world and how that really transforms how we think about caring for each other and caring for the world. And I remember that was definitely a, a huge part of my kind of spiritual and environmental epiphany. Like 
I sort of um, like basically left the evangelical church when I was pretty young. Like I think I was 15 or 16. And I remember this great like line that this um, a pa- former pastor that I used to work with said that totally resonated where he was like at this like Christian music festival and there was some like, you know, emo-ish dude with a guitar and he was just singing about like <laughs> how bad the world is and how horrible life is and like can't wait for God to come home and, and get us all and save us all. And Peter, um, my friend um, who, I, who I've worked with, was basically just like, dude, have you ever eaten a peach? <laughs> you know, like, <laughs> like this world is actually really beautiful and this experience is actually a gift and it's magical. And I always, you know, I kind of joke that I really came back to my spiritual life through environmentalism. And it was very much um, through through talking to people like Diana Butler Bass, um, who do see God as like rooted here. And there, there's not this juxtaposition where you have to kind of only think about the next life or heaven or, um, you know, something far away. But it's like, no, this is actually, you know, where, you know, the rich richness of our spiritual life is. And it's also, you know, means that we need to take it's a sacred place that we absolutely need to be taken care of. Yeah. And, you know, in the the church that I grew up around as a kid in the South, it felt sort of uh, in opposition to science and environmentalism. You know, you you, you couldn't believe in evolution. Uh, you know, later on, climate change is a hoax and 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 earth is here not for us to take care of but to use and i just i just could not get on board with all of that but then later in my life as an adult came to find this incredible community of faith that's the like peach eating yeah. <laughs> school of you know looking at this world as such an incredible gift and something to take care of and and right now again in these crazy times i have been finding a lot of solace and strength in my faith and in being outside. And I feel like that's in what a lot of what Diana talked about in her interview is that the convergence of these things of faith of ourselves and the natural world, those three things together can actually be an incredible source of strength and insight and wisdom. And I feel like strength and insight and wisdom are desperately needed right now by everybody. And I put myself at the top of that list. Oh, totally. I'm like voraciously reading her book because I'm just like, I need some sort of spiritual grounding right now. And I do think it's kind of this, um, you know, for me, like the way I've navigated is it's like both taking action and protecting this sacred place, but it's also like relishing it at the same time, like relishing the peach and the walks outside or the swims in my case, and just like really trying to not get so lost um, in this, you know, greater fear that you forget to really be appreciative of of how beautiful this experience is in a lot of ways. Well, I hope our listeners are ready for some of that spiritual nourishment as well, because it is coming up next in this incredible interview with Diana Butler Bass. That's coming up right after this. Hi, my name is Nick, and I'm from Greenville, South Carolina. And your dinner party climate fact for today is this. In 1910, Glacier National Park was home to more than 150 glaciers. That number has now shrunk to 25 as of December 2016. This national park is expected to eventually lose all of its glaciers. This is only one example of glacial melt that is occurring all over the world.
Anna Jane and I are so excited to be here with Diana Butler Bass, who is a writer and thinker and compassionate human being that we both admire very much. And we're excited to talk with you about this moment that we're in and the intersection between climate, spirituality, and and politics, which is uh, very exciting times to be living in right now for on all those fronts. So just for starters, for listeners who may not be familiar with your work or uh, your great books, um, could you just give a little kind of a, maybe a little description of, of sort of what brought you to the work that you're doing today and, you know, maybe even a little epiphany along the road, uh, especially as it relates to our relationship with the planet that kind of brought you down this path? Oh, sure. Well, thanks so much for coming into my living room, actually, from where we are taping this. And um, when you say that we live in an exciting time, I I could do with a little less excitement. Frankly. <laughs> I totally agree. <laughs> I was like, I would rather have a quieter life, but that's not what we, what we all get right now. Um, over the last 20 years, I can't believe it's been so long, actually. Uh, I have been writing mostly about churches and how congregations and communities can experience more vibrant forms of spiritual life together. And my my hope for doing that writing was not just that churches would be healthier, but I had this wacky idea in my head that if uh, churches were healthier, that they could engage justice more robustly in the world, that they could really do things that mattered together to meet problems, especially related to uh, poverty and uh, peacemaking. Uh, and I think that for a long time, my sets of social issues that I was really passionate about um, had to do with uh, with economic concerns and also with issues of, of reconciliation and peacemaking, either on a global scale or I've always been passionate about women's rights and racial issues. Um, the, the thing that got me towards uh, really engaging climate change and the issues of the planet more fully, it was sort of a two-step process. And uh, people don't know this because I've never written about it. But when I was in my early 20s, I was dating a fellow who was what we now call a climate change denier. Interesting. Yeah. And it it is actually kind of interesting. He was a very conservative Republican from California. He's a, he was a good person. It's one of those kind of crazy relationships you have in your early twenties when the world just sort of explodes when the person walks into the room. And so that, that was that relationship for me. But he, when we were dating, I remember him talking all the time about how there was this ridiculous science that was emerging about how the planet was getting warmer or was the planet getting colder. And, and so he was always on this. Interesting. And it wasn't really on your radar. No, it wasn't on my radar screen at all. But because, and I was a liberal then, and we were sort of like the original couple of the conservative guy the and James Carville and <laughs> yeah but we were reversed and so so anyway I thought well if he thinks that certainly I must think the opposite and so I started <laughs> I started paying attention to it and um as we went through you know later adult life uh, we did not get married the relationship uh, predictably uh, broke up uh, but I did get interested in these issues and I've sort of kept track of of my old boyfriend and he's 
one of the people now who has actually been very involved with like the Koch brothers. Oh, oh how interesting. I know. Isn't that fascinating? And he worked for a while at the Heritage Institute and has been a fellow who's been involved in encouraging scientific research to prove that climate change is not human caused. Fascinating. And, and so that's my, that's my, my old boyfriend. And meanwhile, I went the other direction and got very involved, particularly through um, churches around climate issues and just beginning to, you know, think about what it really means to care for the planet. And um, was, was uh, compelled. I found the work of uh, Bill McKibben really compelling. So those things that 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 relationship and that my bouncing the other direction um, was one of the first things that made me think about climate change. But the second thing was my daughter, um, who has always loved the natural world and her engagement with the planet and loving hiking. And she was a rower in high school. All those things um, gave me a real hands on immediate appreciation of seeing uh, her love for nature and her real, her peer group's real passion about this issue. And it opened my heart up in really new ways. So not only was there this older experience that I had that probably what I'd call it more theoretical, you know, it was kind of a political engagement Mm -hmm. um, and a literary one. Uh, But then when my daughter came along, it became her, the template of her spiritual life. Hmm. And for and for me to be related to her, she opened the door for me to really feel the power of nature in ways that I had never done before. And so wow. for me, it was a kind of almost a midlife conversion. Huh. Well, you know, I, I uh, as a mom myself, uh, I think that the ability of our becoming a parent to open you up to looking at reality in a new way is something I have definitely experienced. And I feel a lot more of a sense of urgency about what's going to happen to the planet, knowing this little six-year-old person, you know, when she's an adult, uh, there's a lot at stake. But I know, Anna Jane, that you can relate to a lot to the first experience of (laughs) (laughs) having people very close to you in your life who are uh, diametrically opposed uh, in your viewpoints on these issues. Yeah, it's funny. I actually also have an ex-boyfriend who works for one of the conservative think tanks in D.C. (laughs) Oh, my gosh. I know. Oh, that's hilarious. He's a great guy. But yeah, we did not land on the same side of issues. (laughs) Um, But yeah, I'm so I'm reading your book right now, um, which I love grounded. Thank you so much for sending it to me. That was such a beautiful gift. It's it's really, really impacting me. Um, But one thing that you talked about in the beginning of the book that I really related to is this um, idea of kind of there's sort of like a, a diaspora of people out of organized religion and how that's really shifting um, sort of spiritual life and how we view God. And I think that I definitely it resonated with me particularly because I am one of those people <laughs> like who like I'm not sure if you know this, but my dad's a very conservative kind of mega church pastor. Um, so I was raised in a very conservative evangelical community. And I just sort of had this epiphany when I was around 16 where I, I was racked with fear and guilt that maybe I didn't believe in God or I you know, wasn't so sure about all these things. And then if I was wrong, I might be going to hell. And then one day I just like woke up and was basically 
Like, I don't really know. I don't really think anybody knows. And I really love this world and this life, and I really want to experience it. Um, and I'm going to stop worrying it and just focus my attention on loving this world and this life. Um, and that really was sort of the beginnings of my environmental awakening because it, it, it became much more focused on, you know, the, the planet and the people here. And, and, and that, you know, later in college, as I took classes and learned more, kind of turned into the seeds of my activism. But I was just curious. Um, and, and also, I've, you know, I keep track with a lot of people who um, were kind of millennials who were raised in a more conservative evangelical settings who have also either left or kind of in this weird in-between place. And I really get the sense that a lot of it is driven in some ways by politics. Like there's a, um, like my dad's church when I was younger was very youthful. There's a lot of creativity and a lot of young people. And now you walk in and it kind of looks like you're in an old person's home. And it's like, as he became more politically conservative, he lost a lot of his younger followers. And I was just, it, and, and particularly I've worked with a, f a few of the people who grew up in the church on climate change issues. And that's, you know, that I think with racial justice and, you know, all these other major societal issues are definitely something that's become kind of a wedge between them and the conservative evangelical church. And they don't really feel like they have a home there. Mm -hmm. um, and I, yeah, I was just curious if you could speak to that because I found that really interesting. Yeah, well, you're asking some is some intriguing questions. It's taking me back a little further than I usually go in conversations. You want to talk about now, but we're winding up talking about 30 years ago. Mm -hmm. um, my background when I was a teenager and then a college student, and really even through seminary, I was part of the evangelical tradition. In the 1970s, I converted to evangelical religion out of mainline Methodism. Yeah. And it was, the, it was that time when the Jesus movement was really strong and there are lots and lots of people, especially who are my age, who are at the tail end of the baby boom generation who had very dramatic conversions. Yep. My, it, my parents are a part of that. Generation. Okay. Yep. Yeah. And what happened to the, that group of people was sort of fascinating. Either they wound up like your dad where people said, oh my gosh, I found Jesus. I'm a true believer. This is exactly what church should be like. I believe the Bible is literally true. Or they wound up like me. <laughs> and that was, oh my gosh, I found Jesus. My heart is full of enthusiasm and passion for this new thing. And I went from I wasn't really interested in so much doctrinal purity as I was interested in spiritual experience. Hmm. And sort of the deeper I got into the evangelical movement, going to an evangelical college and then graduating from an evangelical seminary, I realized how much of evangelicalism was about getting ideas about God right. Hmm. And those ideas about God were drawn up uh, by uh, mostly male theologians, and they were guarded mostly by male pastors. And the further, the older I got, the more I realized that there was not a whole lot of space in evangelicalism for women as leaders, as thinkers, as writers. And so I actually got kicked out. Oh my goodness. <laughs> wow. I did. My first, my first teaching job was at a evangelical college in California. And I was there for two years before my presence had so upset the entire system <laughs> that I found myself 
in the in the principal's office. Yeah, that was basically what it was like, but it was in the college president's office. I think that's what uh, uh, Representative John Lewis would call good trouble. Oh my gosh, <laughs> you got into some good trouble. <laughs> I I did. I got into good trouble, and um, so I was so I was told I was in trouble after two years, and I I fought keeping my job for another two years. Um, but after that, it was ridiculous for me to stay and hurtful. So they they sent me packing. And uh, that was in 1994. So all those years ago, I was basically kicked out of evangelicalism. And I kind of didn't know where to go. And I wound up at a very, very liberal Episcopal church. Ah, in the, in I the go town. to an Episcopal church. Yeah, it's it's a nice uh, a nice healing place. It is <laughs> for, for post evangelicals, and it was that church that was the one who really uh, was able to help me put the pieces back together. And I realized that my sort of political views, which had always been more on the liberal side, even when I wasn't evangelicalism, I was very influenced by people like Jim Wallace and progressive evangelicalism. Uh, but there in the Episcopal church is like, oh my gosh, here's an entire church full of people. I don't have to fight about politics. And um, not only did they not want to fight me, but they were opening the doors for my exploration of theology, for me to find different spiritual paths. And it was a, it was a beautiful way of, of being, I, I didn't know I could still be Christian and be outside of evangelicalism, but I could be. And so that was very, for me, that was exactly what I needed to find at the time. But what nobody realized is the thing that you were talking about. And even 20 some odd years ago, when I was leaving evangelicalism, who knew that my story was really kind of the beginning of what would become a flood Hmm. of people who just could not see a sense of integrity between the words that were being spoken and their experiences of Jesus. And so that, I I think there was this huge gap of hypocrisy that opened up in evangelicalism. And it really has created the circumstance of a massive decline in uh, Protestant adherence um, in the United States. And you said a moment ago, you didn't realize you could still be Christian outside of those kind of constructs. And I think uh, a lot of people probably are feeling that now that, you know, on the one hand, you have the leadership of, say, the Pope on climate change. But on the other hand, you have lots of faith leaders who say, if you believe in evolution, that that's sinful. Uh, Or if you believe the science of climate change, that you're being fooled by a hoax. And so I think... uh, I'd love to hear you talk about more about finding that voice of being able to be a Christian and a progressive Christian and bringing that, um, bringing those, how, how that kind of unfolded in, in your life after you, you started to connect those dots. Yeah, I, I think that there are certain ways I was already set in that direction um, just because when I had been a college student at this, this evangelical college as a, between the ages of 18 and 22, that was the time in which this progressive evangelical voice was very strong. And so I referred to Jim Wallace or, uh, there was a magazine then called the other side, 
hmm. which was this amazing kind of magazine came out of an urban Christian community in Philadelphia. And they were interested in social justice and poetry and theology. And it was, it was just like the perfect mix for me. So there was this great passionate voice of engagement with the world that was part of the evangelicalism I knew in the late 1970s and the early 1980s. And it wasn't until 1980, of course, that Jerry Falwell started the moral majority. And I can remember that was my junior year in, in college. And I can remember, um, listening to him with my friends and we would laugh at him Hmm. because we thought he was just a fool and we could not see any resemblance between the Bible we read and the sort of social vision that he was preaching. And we completely dismissed him as an absolute buffoon and kind of went along on our merry way. And what we didn't realize, of course, is that evidently there were millions of people who decided to believe that Jerry Falwell's view of the Bible and society was the true one. And what we had been exploring as young evangelicals in California in the 1970s, that we were somehow heretics. You know, from that vantage point, where did climate change and kind of environmental protection really at large become politicized um, within the Christian community? I think it was around the moral majority in the Reagan years in the 1980s. You know, I think that that just, that was just a huge cultural moment. And I can remember Ronald Reagan and was it James Watt? Remember his, yep. uh, I, I don't do know, his, that guy. His, his secretary of interior. You're probably way too young to remember him personally. But I remember watching him on television and when he started talking about how trees polluted the world, you know, it was like, I remember hitting my, you know, that was what we now call face palm, you know, (laughs) but, but then it was just hitting my forehead with my, with my hand. And, and um, so when Watt said that he was, I believe, assemblies of God. Yeah. He was a very devout evangelical. Mm -hmm. And so it was almost as if it was putting the evangelical community on notice Hmm. to have a secretary of interior who was just so opposed to anything having to do with environmentalism. And then of course there was, I think the, now we all know, but you know, the beginning of these kinds of think tanks that were bringing in these funds to change the conversation. Hmm. Um, And that would take some time to grow, but, Certainly at that point, it was at least at a very uh, nascent stage. I'd love to uh, to um, talk ab- about the moment that we're in now and how, you know, you have a president with lots of evangelical supporters uh, vowing to pull out of the Paris Climate Agreement and scrap lots of our climate and clean air and clean water standards. And what do you think are the, the sort of threads that carry through from that day to this day? And and what what's the Christian response for those of us who are really passionate about this in the world? Yeah, well, I think that one of the things that Anna Jane said that I, I wouldn't want people to miss is these communities have been deeply, deeply politicized. And so right now, if you look at religious groups sort of across the board, there's only two sort of religious communities that are roughly what we call 50-50 communities. And that is um, 
white mainline Protestantism, what little there is left of it, um, is a community that is still fairly evenly divided politically. This last election, I think the final numbers that, you know, they takes a while to count these things, but I think the final number was something like 56% of white mainliners voted for Trump. And that would mean 44% voted for Hillary and some very small percentage vote for the other two candidates. Um, so that community remains, you know, kind of split. And then white Catholics also remain um, fairly split, roughly 60-40. Sometimes in the Obama years, they were co- voting closer to 50-50, but now they're about 60-40 so in, ter- in favor of conservatives rather than liberals. But other than those two communities, every other religious community has a highly charged political environment one way or the other. So if you look at American Jews, about 85% of American Jews are Democrats. If you look at white evangelical Christians in this last election, 81% of white evangelicals voted for Donald Trump. It is the highest percentage vote that any presidential candidate has ever gotten from the white evangelical community. I was shocked. Although I wonder, I in those polls, I keep up with a lot of like young people and millennials who don't, you know, who are raised evangelical and might still like, consider themselves Christians or Jesus followers, but don't self-identify. Like they wouldn't click evangelical in a box. That's correct. And I wonder like how, like, I think there's actually probably millions of younger people who might theologically be considered evangelicals, but wouldn't like the polls, they wouldn't show up in the polls. Yeah. And the way that that would work, I think, um, is, and it goes to what you were saying is that when people ask religious communities how they vote, you know, it's a self identification. And so if you are a, a, a white younger American who happened to grow up in evangelicalism and maybe still are kind of theologically in that camp, um, most of them are not going to pick that label anymore. Uh, I would love to hear your thoughts about kind of what faith has to offer secular climate advocates what some some of these pieces that they they may be missing in their own their own advocacy or their own work yeah well, well for me with this genesis passage and realizing this idea of we're walking in the garden and we're watching over this amazing ecology that we have been gifted by the universe is that the other really fun part of Genesis. I love, I actually think that if I was stuck on a desert Island and I could only have one thing to read, I'd just take the first three chapters of Genesis. Um, and this is actually beautiful and deep because when that whole command was given, God was not far away. As a matter of fact, those beautiful ancient Hebrew stories depict a God who is walking around in the garden with Adam and Eve. And so there's this this sense of, of, of profound connection and deep intimacy between God, those, the humans, the human creatures, all of the creatures that have been created and the larger uh, environment in which they live. And they're all there together. They are with one another in the garden. And that's what grounded becomes about. It's about how God is with us. And so, you know, a lot of my friends are, um, atheists and agnostics and certainly humanists, secular um, activist types. 
And part of the reason that a lot of my friends tell me they got to those positions is that they rejected the idea of a distant, faraway God, the Donald Trump God. And <laughs> before, before we had Trump and, uh, and, uh, I always say to them, you know what? I, I don't believe in that God either. And they look at me and they say, well, what you're, you're a Christian. And I said, well, but Christianity is not about a God who sits on some distant cloud is far away from us and who wants to judge us. And is this, you know, scary King, um, no, the, 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 the deepest story of both the Hebrew old Testament and also the Christian New Testament is a story of intimacy with the sacred. And not only does creation begin with God walking around the garden with Adam and Eve, but um, the New Testament opens with a story of a baby being born here to a mother and father, and that baby's name is Emmanuel, God with us. Hmm. And so the whole point of both so the deepest wisdom of Judaism and the deepest wisdom of Christianity is a God who is in an intimate place with us here in the world, in the garden. And that there's something when all three of those pieces are together, the divine presence, the human, uh, the, crea- the, 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 the human passion of life, and the ecological garden, the place that we live, when we're all connected, that that is the place that we're supposed to be. And mm. uh, even when I just say that, I think of that old shaker hymn, tis a gift to be simple, tis a gift to be free, tis mm-hmm. a gift to, to calm, calm down, down where, where we, we ought to, to be. Yeah, this, beautiful. Yeah, this beautiful, amazing, and you know, the American folk hymn just grips your soul coming out of really Appalachia. And, um, you know, you don't have to believe in God to be an environmentalist, but if you really understand that story and that wisdom, you can't be anything other than an environmentalist. Mm. That's great. That's great. Anna Jane, uh, do you want to offer one last, uh, one last question from down there in Alabama before we (laughs) wrap up? Sounds great. Um, like how just sort of tangible ways that that this kind of spiritual revolution or concept of God being with us can you know, help heal humanity's wounds, I think is the phrase that you used in the book. Like, like, how do you, you know, what is the impact, I guess, like if people really live this and, and believe it, how do you see it, you know, helping yeah. all these major problems? I actually think that it's really quite easy and and I've given a lot of long answers, but this is a short one. And that is if we really do believe that God is with us in the natural world, and that's the first half of the book. And the second half of the world, uh, the book, I talk about the world of neighbors. And so the book is about nature and neighbor. But if we really believe that God is present in the natural world, in this garden with us, and that God is present in and through the lives of all the people and the communities that we inhabit, well, if that doesn't make a difference, I think that nothing will make a difference. And so to me, to find God here, rather than judging us someplace off in a distance, is a a, a profoundly compelling uh, reminder that what we do is it matters, and that it matters because it's eternal, and it matters because it's beautiful, and it matters because it's sacred. 
And so it's not just fixing policy, which is a great thing, but it's also connecting the threads of a broken world in weaving a different kind of cloth. And so, so to me, God with us is so empowering in that way. Hmm. That's absolutely beautiful. I just, I have shivers. Um, thank you. And thank you so much for helping shine a light here in the darkness and show us at least the next couple of steps on that path. It has been a real pleasure, Diana Butler Bass. And uh, thank you. It's really just been such a treat. Thank you. Thank you. Yes, thank you so much. All right, that just about does it for us. Anna Jane and I want to thank you all so much for listening. And big thanks again to our interview guest, Diana Butler Bass. Our sponsor is the Sierra Club, and our theme music is by River Wireless. This episode was produced by the illustrious Zach Mack, who recently bought a hybrid car, but rarely uses the eco mode feature. Subscribe to us on iTunes, and please also leave us a review on iTunes. This really helps us get the word out. You can find us wherever you get your podcasts, and we'll be posting all episodes and updates and information about upcoming episodes on our Twitter page, at NPLH Podcast. So be sure to follow us there. If you like our show or have any questions, comments, suggestions, or you want to be a part of our show by reading a dinner party climate fact for an upcoming episode, tweet at us. Again, we're at NPLH Podcast. Take care, and remember, there's no place like home.